0: 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. This week, we're stepping back in time, way back some 10,000 years BC, into the world of archaeology, Egyptology and Assyriology. Yes, it's time for another special with Professor Michael Hudson. That's right, Michael Hudson, back on the show. He's got a new book called "Labor in the Ancient World," and I asked him to give us a bit of a précis on the background to this very interesting process. Hang on for another riveting conversation here on Three CR's Renegade Economists.
1: It's a symposium of a group put together at Harvard University of all the leading Assyriologists and uh, Egyptologists and Mycenaean Greek specialists. Uh, and archaeologists on how early societies mobilized uh, the labor force, especially for large public building projects, such as uh, temples, city walls, and other infrastructure.
0: And this is published through who?
1: It'll be published by uh, Islet, the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends. Uh, we just finished the uh, typesetting, actually, today, and they're sending it to uh, Amazon to uh, be put on their uh, list. It'll probably be available in about three weeks.
0: Labor in the ancient world. And does that have some sort of Harvard connection?
1: Yes. We originally founded this project 20 years ago at the uh, Peabody Museum, which is their archaeology and anthropology department. We wanted to do a series of books at that time on uh, how modern economies and practices begin. And our first colloquium was in 1994 on privatization in the ancient Near East and classical world. Our second volume was on land ownership and urbanization, how cities uh, uh, were created and uh, how land ownership and real estate patterns developed and a market for real estate. And the third volume was on economic renewal. In uh, the ancient Near East, in other words, how there were debt cancellations in order to continue to restore the land to the cultivators to provide uh, means of self-support for the population as a whole. But then the the uh, colloquia got so popular that uh, we added a fourth volume on uh, creating economic order on the origins of money and account keeping from Mesopotamia to Mycenaean and Greece and Egypt. Uh, and then uh, for the, uh, 10 years ago, we had our fifth colloquium on uh, labor in the ancient Near East. And it, there's been so many revolutions in uh, uh, archaeology and Assyriology and even Egyptology in the last 10 years that uh, we're only publishing that volume now, uh, brought completely up to date.
0: So the ancient Near East... How many thousand years ago was it? Just put us in the picture.
1: We began the volume in 10,000 BC in Turkey, uh, where you have very large city-like ceremonial sites, larger than Stonehenge, Huge sites that took hundreds of years to build with huge stone megaliths, even in the pre-pottery Neolithic. In other words, they didn't have metal to carve these stones. They didn't have pottery, but they had in Godelpe uh, uh all sorts of uh, huge carvings of an astronomical nature where people would come together on uh, uh, ceremonial uh, times like uh, Midsummer and work We dealt from Turkey in 10,000 BC to Sumer in the third millennium BC, Babylonia in the second millennium BC, the building of the pyramids, and we have the actual bills and uh, accounting statements for, you know, what's paid labor uh, to build the pyramids. We found they were not built by slaves. They were built by very well-paid, skilled labor, and the problem in all these periods is how do you get labor to go to work in a time which for 10,000 years there was a labor shortage. How do you get people to go to work if they don't want to? They can just move somewhere else. All of this labour that was built on uh, uh, temples and uh, uh, big ceremonial sites had to be voluntary. Otherwise, people wouldn't have gone there. And we found a number of things.
0: Michael, how did you actually track this? I mean, what were you reading to get this information?
1: Everybody who comes to the colloquium is a specialist in their period. Uh, for instance, Carol Amber Karlovsky is the archaeologist who was dealing with uh, Gildalpe Tiki in a. Uh, Turkey. We have Babylonian specialists. We have Egyptian specialists. Each person throughout uh, all of these five volumes, uh, we had a specialist in each time period and each geographical area for uh, what we're doing.
0: And you were reading clay tablets, cuneiform?
1: They basically read the clay tablets if they're Mesopotamia. They realize they read the stone carvings in the Egyptian pyramids on the inside of the big uh, rock blocks that they make the pyramids out of. People would carve, you know, I'm from this hometown and that hometown. uh, And there are also uh, hieroglyphic records uh, saying here is what we uh, have to pay for the people. And we also have royal inscriptions And one thing we found is that, you know, why do people go to work building all of this hard manual labor? And one reason is it's a big beer party there are huge expenditures on beer. If you're going to have a lot of people come voluntarily to do something like city building or constructing their own kind of national identity of a palace and walls, you've got to have plenty of beer and you also have plenty of meat, plenty of animals being sacrificed. So what we found is that the people doing the manual labor on the the pyramids, the uh, Mesopotamian uh, temples and uh, city walls and uh, other sites, were uh, given a very good high protein meat diet. There were plenty of festivals. The way of integrating all of these people were in uh, public feasts. And they all felt that this was like joining uh, their peer pressure group or their peer group, all uh, creating a kind of national identity.
0: Back in those times, how on earth would have they realized when this festival was on how was the communication spread that this was the time to come together there's a lot of things you guys have uncovered well we discussed this in the second
1: volume of our series urbanization and land use in the ancient near east they do it by the calendar uh, they do it by counting the moons and the solar uh, solstices and equinoxes. And uh, all of the ceremonial sites from Stonehenge to Turkey are all based on the uh, particular equinox or uh, solstice uh, where uh, you, you, you'd you have a date that uh, the chieftains, who would usually be the calendar keepers, uh, would keep the calendar all the way going back to the Ice Age In uh, uh, around 29,000 BC, we have carved bones with the phases of the moon on. So the job of the chieftain was to carve the phases of the moon, to calculate how long the month would be, to know that, ah, in this month, uh, six months after uh, the equinox, here's where we have to get together and have everybody come and
0: uh, begin working on the uh, big site. So I'm still trying to grasp this, Michael, all these laborers that would come together in this centralized place to build this giant statue or pyramid based out of some sort of goodwill. What was it?
1: Well, to begin with, on the first, you'd uh, have a big beer party uh, to get everybody friendly. Uh, You'd have a big feast, uh, big meals, and you have this all over the world, that uh, communal feasts are the way of uh, integrating societies. And then, obviously, somebody was in charge of designing these uh, monuments. Uh, We don't know whom, but they would carve the stones. They'd carry them over large distances. uh, They'd transport them, uh, just like in Stonehenge. Uh, they had to take these stones from a large distance, they'd quarry them, they'd cut them, and were dealing in a time before they invented uh, steel or metal. Many of the stones had to be cut just by chipping away with other stones. So they do this a uh, very laborious uh, type of business and work. Well, later, by about uh, 2000 BC, you had a much more dense population. You would have a shift from the temples that originally organized most of this work to the palaces. And uh, you uh, you would schematize and organize this labor coming together. So you'd say, okay, we're going to divide up the land. And uh, whoever has such and such a plot of land has to supply uh, so many laborers to work on the uh, the, uh, the temples and the palaces and the public infrastructure. So what we found as a byproduct of the labor volume is that the origins of land rights were defined by the tax payments. In other words, in order to get the right to have a given amount of land of a given size, you had to say, you had to promise on such and such a date. To provide this much labor for the corvée project. It's a French word uh, because the corvée of Uh, paying taxes in the form of labor instead of payments went all the way down through the uh, 18th century in France. Uh, And it was uh, typical in medieval Europe before you had a money economy. So uh, you'd have everybody who had their own subsistence land or their own land holdings, uh, one form or another, or their grazing lands, would have to supply X number of uh, laborers uh, to the big building project.
0: That's quite some discovery. So you're saying that labor was provided as an in-kind payment for taxation based around calendars to build these giant monuments.
1: Yes. Every one of our archaeologists, Assyriologists and Egyptologists have found for every period of uh, the Bronze Age and the Neolithic. And
0: so uh, it was still rather on a voluntary level. There was no uh, quantifying...
1: Version. We're dealing with society. There weren't that many people in the world in 2000 BC or 3000 BC or 10,000 BC. And uh, what you have, uh, when you would have a uh, a government that got too oppressive, or when they would raise the contributions or taxes too high, people would just uh, flee to another uh, another area. Or if they, uh, if they were too much indebted, uh, the, the debtors would flee, as they did from... Uh, Babylonia around 1600 BC, all the way down to uh, Roman times.
0: Right. So uh, they had to build this social contract around these feasts, around this uh, sense of belonging by being at this uh, public works event. Sounds like a a fascinating way to uh, uh, keep society on track and organize labor so that civilization would develop on some level, but have you found any indication on that managerial class and how they developed uh, through the chieftains? They were
1: mainly the priesthoods. Uh, The calendar keepers were usually uh, the chief, and most of the religions were basically cosmological. They wanted to create a whole cosmology of nature and society, and it all was based on astronomy, and uh, it was all based on the calendar. Uh, When you have tribes... Uh, A a society divided into 12 tribes, as you had in Israel, but you also had it in Greece in the Amphictyones. You also had it in uh, Mesopotamia. The division of 12 tribes was so each of the tribe could take turns administering the ceremonial center for one month out of the year cities were based on the calendar you had cities if they were big cities they would have 12 gates most cities had maybe four gates and the four gates represented the four seasons or the four quarters of the earth the out Line of the land and of the earth was all based on a, uh, a two-dimensional cosmology. Uh, like a, a the cities were designed as calendars and miniatures. Well, so were the ceremonial sites. Like uh, Stonehenge was a calendar and miniature, uh, so that uh, the light would fall on the stones in a particular way on a solstice. Uh, we have this going all the way back into uh, the Ice Age around. 30,000 BC, and Alex Marshak's uh, article on the second volume on urbanization found that these uh, sites already in the Ice Age were usually sited on waterways so that everybody could get to them. Uh, they often were sited in a way that from this site, you would have like mountains in the background, and it was in between the mountains that the sun would shine in a particular way that it would be on the, on the equinox or on the solstice. Uh, that you could have a particular pattern that occurred at that calendrical time, and they were really recreating on Earth what the cosmos was.
0: You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist. This week with distinguished research professor Michael Hudson from michael-hudson.com, and we're discussing his new book, Labor in the Ancient World. We're tracking back some 10,000-odd years, hearing about how civilization was developed Michael, this is a fascinating discussion, and I'm interested in about the, of course, here on The Renegades, about this role of land tenure, how that influenced citizens' role in society. And from what I've read uh, out of your new book, it sounds like that uh, land holdings, of course, played a huge role in the status of a participant in one society.
1: Well, in, uh, in America, down to... Uh... Uh, the time of the revolution in the 18th century and in early Australia, I assume also in order to vote, in order to be a citizen, you had to be a landowner. And uh, all the way back in Rome and earlier times, Mesopotamia, Babylonia, Sumer, in order to be a citizen, you had to have your own land. And in Rome, each citizen and his voting rights were defined by the land area uh, that he owned. I say he because uh, the landowner was uh, a male and only the males were citizens. Uh, It was a patriarchal society. And you had citizenship defined by land ownership. What that meant was uh, today we have the great interference with land ownership as being finance. Uh, If you owe money on a mortgage and you can't pay, uh, you can be evicted. And you had that begin to happen already around 2000 BC in Babylonia. Well, this caused a real problem for rulers because what do you do if a creditor, evicts the landowner takes over the land well then all of a sudden this former landowner is no longer a citizen And if he's not a citizen, he can't serve in the army. One's rank in the army down through Roman times was all defined by how much land one had. So if you have just a little bit of land, you're in the infantry. If you have a lot of land, then you have enough money to support yourself and enough leisure to have a horse and to uh, uh, participate in all the military training and the armor you had. It goes all the way, uh, same thing in Japan. All over the world, the uh, citizenship... The rank in the army and land ownership were all together in a single comprehensive system.
0: Yes, and and through the English uh, military, the same sort of things happen as well. So you can see a point that uh, if you own lots of land, you want to defend it, so that uh, these landowners need to be involved to defend their land. Uh, how times have changed!
1: Uh, they weren't merely defending; they would also be aggressive. I gotta say, uh, there there was a continual uh, attack. And the attacking or the defense also uh, had a financial land ownership uh, dimension. In Greece, there's a military manual in the third century BC uh, by a man who took the pseudonym of Tacticus, not Tacitus as in Rome, but Tacticus for tactics. And uh, he wrote that if you're attacking a city, what you do is you uh, agree to cancel the debts and free all the slaves, and all the debtors are going to come over to your side. And if you're defending a city, Then uh, you also promise to cancel everyone's debts and free the slaves, and that's how you get people on your side. Well, that's what Coriolanus did in Rome, uh, and it's what Zedekiah did in Israel, but uh, both rulers went back on the uh, their word as soon as things were over. But in, Mes- in Babylonia, we have continual uh, debt cancellations. Whenever a new ruler would take the throne, and this is in our third volume, Debt and Economic Renewal in the ancient Near East,
0: uh, the
1: ruler would uh, proclaim underarum or Misharum, uh, a clean slate, and he would do three things. And these three things are exactly what you get in the biblical jubilee year. You would free the debt slaves or the servants and let them return to their uh, family of origin. You would cancel all of the debts that were owed and you would return the land rights or the crop rights to uh, debtors who had pledged them to their creditors. And in other words what you would do is restore order. You'd make things the way they were in an idealized past in which everybody owned their own land and could able to provide their own means of subsistence, free of debt. It's the opposite of today's idea of debt serfdom, reducing more and more of the population uh, to debt peonage, where all of their income has to be paid to creditors. And finally, if they lose their job, they lose their land and their house, and uh, the banks get to keep it. That idea have depopulated the ancient world. If that would have happened, you'd have everybody just getting up and leaving, or they'd go over to the enemy when uh, people uh, when other armies uh, that did have their own land uh, would attack. Uh, you would have defections uh, all the time. So uh, that's what sort of locked in the system of uh, widespread land ownership and liberty from debt.
0: Right. So reiterating the clean slate would build that social contract with the ruler and help continue the, the goodwill that led to these, this massive public uh, uh, development that was voluntarily um, provided, well, in kind, really, tax in kind. So uh, that, that sounds fascinating that people would just defect and, and move to uh, another country um, under another ruler if the debt stayed too high. Even back in those times when we weren't anywhere near as mobile as today, that sort of behaviour was going on.
1: That's right. We have all sorts of documents, and especially the hapiro, who some people translate as Hebrews around the 14th century and 13th century. Uh, all were debt fugitives. Rome itself was said to be founded by uh, exiles and runaways, you know, mainly runaways from debt, who'd uh, just created their own uh, society there. Uh, so... It it goes uh, way back. Uh, It's it's surprising one doesn't have a similar uh, idea today, but that's why David Graeber picked up all of this history in his uh, book on debt, uh, The First 4,000 Years.
0: The history of clean slate and the jubilee, uh, how did the, the role of agrarian debt develop? And there was quite a battle between the creditors and the rulers. How did that all play out?
1: it played out differently everywhere there was a constant tension by the bronze age through classical antiquity between central rulers who were trying to maintain a society and uh <clears throat> local uh local headmen who are trying to get the power for themselves? So the big question is, who is going to run society? Is it going to be the uh, the priesthood and the military rulers uh, at the top of the pyramid, or is it going to be the creditors who are grabbing everybody's land and uh, trying to separate? In the past, and strong rulers uh, like Hammurabi uh, would centralize rule, uh, but then you'd have periods called intermediate periods where everything sort of fell apart and there was a free for all, and all of the uh, local leaders came. Well, from 1200 BC to about 750 BC in the Mediterranean, you have a whole dark age. Uh, apparently, you had very uh, not only very bad weather uh, around 1200 BC, but the bad weather and crop failures, maybe an, a small ice age, and drought led to mass invasions, and uh, all of the, the palaces were burned, and uh, you have just the dark age for 500 years. And then when you have people emerging, the person who had been the local uh, branch manager of the palace workshop all of a sudden uh, appears as the Basilius, uh, the ruler, because you could see when central power falls apart, the local guys uh, take over, uh, the dissolution of national power. You had the same thing in England. After the Norman invasion, you had the a Magna Carta. Uh, you had an autocratic ruler, King John, who was trying to grab all the money for himself, and then you had the landowners who wanted to break free. And uh, the Magna Carta was saying, okay, you can't tax us. Uh, the rent that we used to have to pay you uh, to support the royal army, we're going to keep for ourselves now. And the debts we owe to the Jews We don't have to pay because they're not allowed to earn uh, land uh, thanks to anti-Semitism. And you, you have the founding documents of almost every nation has to do with the relationship between finance, land and the relationship between central rulers power and local power. And you could say that the progress of civilization uh, for the last thousand years uh, since feudal times has been a dissolution of autocratic uh, feudal power towards more and more democratized uh, power. The problem is that land has been democratized on credit. And so instead of owing money to landlords, homeowners now own money to their bankers.
0: That is the challenge of the ages, isn't it? And looking through these writings of yours, it just becomes so clear that uh, this battle between credit and the sovereignty of this democratic process uh, has been an ongoing challenge. And uh, in antiquity, uh, did the vocabulary really distinguish interest from usury?
1: No, there was only in the uh, 13th century, really by uh, Thomas Aquinas, was there a distinction between interest and usury. Any taking of interest was considered uh, usury uh, in antiquity. That's why some people tried to ban it for consumer uh, interest. And when usury, the distinction was made, usury was supposed to be for unproductive consumer loans, and interest was uh, to be for bona fide uh, commercial loans, Uh, the Italian word was agio, a a premium, so that bankers would try to get away uh, around the Christian uh, sanctions against usury by saying, okay, it's not interest, it's a fee. It's a foreign exchange fee, and they would uh, pretend to be making a foreign exchange transaction and paying for the foreign exchange convertibility, like if you're converting Australian pounds into dollars, you have to give a few... uh, percentages to uh, the transactor, you had interest concealed as a foreign exchange fee uh, and as interest in various uh, things like you do in uh, today's Islamic finance.
0: So when we look over the history of this era and this battle between credit and the ruling elite, the challenge was over maintaining land ownership within your community and keeping your people there, making sure that they had some sort of um, share in, in the uh, benefits of, of working together. And uh, this sort of independence of people being able to live off their land seems to have been the battle between the democratic principles and the creditors again.
1: That's basically so. And all of the earlier common law had blockages against it. So if you're a creditor. Uh, and you want to get somebody else's land, how do you get it? Well, in Babylonia and also neighboring Indo-European-speaking communities, such as the Hurrians in Nuzi, you would say, well, all of the land tenure rights are only transmissible within a family. So the family gets uh, to, to keep control of its basic land. And so the creditors would get themselves adopted by the debtor as a number one son, as their heir. So that the uh, uh when the uh debtor died, the number one son, the creditor, would inherit uh the land as if he were part of the kinship based community uh and there were all sorts of proverbs in Babylonia: a creditor has many relatives uh and uh, things like that and uh so basically there were these these uh subterfuges that uh, the creditors would use is what you would call small print today. And creditors at Wall Street have always been very subtle in uh, finding uh, end runs around laws to obey the letter of the law and uh, change the spirit of the law completely.
0: Changing the spirit of the law, let's uh, speed into the current American situation with Elizabeth Warren and the Democratic ticket. I saw this week that she's uh, come out uh, fighting against uh, banks uh, and their uh, threat to reduce donations to the Democratic Party if Elizabeth Warren doesn't tone things down. Now, what Did your blood boil when you read that, Michael?
1: Not at all. That's, uh, you, the Democratic Party in America, you have to realise, is to the right of the Republican Party. Basically, the Republicans could never get away without turning over power to Wall Street, because as long as they're in power, the Democratic opposition will block them from doing it. Although the Republican Party is almost entirely funded by lobbyists from corporations uh, to Israel, uh, the Democratic Party is uh, the one that has the power to unblock the giveaways to Wall Street. Uh, And most of this is done uh, under former Clinton uh, Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, who uh, was an Administrator who got rid of the Glass-Steagall Act who uh, inaugurated the whole wave of crime uh, gone through banking. Uh, The Glass-Steagall Act and uh, the lack of regulation for derivatives was done in 1999. It took only eight years for the most criminal organization, uh, Citibank and Wall Street, to bring down the economy. And who was the head of Citibank? Rubin, having freed uh, all the regulation, went to Citibank and ran what's called the Rubino Gang, uh, a group of uh, corrupt criminals Criminals that uh, essentially lo- uh, uh, wrote fake mortgages. Uh, they're called Liar's Loans, or Alt-A, and sold them to gullible uh, people like German uh, Landesbanks who uh, 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 believed that Wall Street wouldn't try to cheat them. And essentially pulled the biggest ripoff in history. You can read what my UMKC uh, colleague, Bill Black, has written recently on naked capitalism and the University of Missouri-Kansas City site, New Economic Perspectives, on uh, the Citibank criminal organization there. But the Democrats, being in power under Obama, blocked any prosecution of criminals. Not a single bank crook has been thrown in jail after over $4 trillion have been stolen. The the crime wave of Wall Street and real estate in the last decade has endowed an entire ruling class for the next century in America and uh, they're absolutely vicious more criminal than the uh, Russian kleptocrats uh, or the others because they're in uh, total control of the government and they've redefined free markets to them a free market is Wall Street completely free of any government regulations to control banking and free of any criminal prosecution because they have their guy in the uh, Justice Department. Uh, The head of Justice Department is Eric Holder, whose job is to protect Wall Street, and uh, he wants to resign recently in favor of uh, a successor who also is a Wall Street lobbyist. So we're about to have, essentially, the whole real estate and mortgage uh, system in America has been criminalized in the way that uh, Bill Black has been uh, describing in four wonderful articles that he's published uh, in the last week on Naked Capital
0: capitalism. Excellent, Michael. I'll, I'll look forward to reading those. And, uh, I mean, th- that's the horror story of banking, but I like the fact that you've dug into the, the archives and found one of the bright spots for the finance industry, and that was the Saint-Simonian banking ethos. Can you remind our listeners what that was all about and what we hope the finance sector aspires to?
1: Well, in the 19th century, of course, you had the Industrial Revolution just taking off. And uh, the question is, how can uh, you have banking serve the industrialization of countries? Before the 19th century, and all throughout antiquity, there's not a single bank loan in antiquity, almost, uh, that was ever made to build a factory or actual means of production. Uh, Loans were made against property, or they were made largely to ship goods, products, uh, exports, once they were produced. But banking before the 19th century had never actually funded investment. Uh, James Watt wasn't able to get the money for the steam engine from a bank, except by mortgaging his property and borrowing from friends. So Saint-Simon in France said, look, we've got to industrialize France to catch up with England and overtake it. We've got to have banking, essentially, instead of making loans in exchange for interest, interest payments which can force them under and force them into bankruptcy when uh, business turns down, Uh, bank loans should really be a profit-sharing deal, as they were, by the way, way back in uh, Babylonian times. Uh, And his idea of banks were more like uh, mutual funds whose fortunes would go up or down with those of the customer. Well, the the main country that adopted San simonian industrial banking was Germany and also other Central European countries. And there the banks would uh, take a... uh, position with their customers they'd be stock owners as well as creditors they would uh, support uh, uh, industry and act basically is the forward planning arm is industry and it was expected until World War One most futurists from uh, Karl Marx to uh, just regular businessmen expected banks to take the lead in planning society But after World War I, Germany lost, and uh, the world reverted to Anglo-American banking. And the Anglo-American banking was basically short-term hit and run. They don't make loans for uh, industrial development. They make loans to take over companies, to take over industry, uh, and and, uh, to ship exports. But they're really not plugged in to how to... Uh, actually fund uh, industrialization and capital formation. And so what we have is societies fallen back in the last hundred years to uh, just the opposite of what classical economists and what uh, 19th century futurists had expected uh, to be. So although we do have now a centrally planned society, centrally planned in Wall Street, the City of London, Frankfurt, and other financial centers, this planning is extractive not productive. It's uh, seeking to extract interest payments to a uh, profiteer from takeovers and, and gambles, uh, but it's not designed to industrialize. And that's why most of the world now, outside of China, is in a period of economic shrinking and deindustrialization.
0: So to wrap things up, Michael, uh, what can we learn from the ancient Near East? And perhaps you can enlighten how you got interested in this this whole historical topic going way back through these cuneiform readings of clay tablets.
1: Well, the advantage of studying the ancient Near East is to see how different economies through history have dealt with uh, the phenomenon of debts that are too large to be paid. Right now, you're having in the Eurozone, uh, with its arguments against Greece, uh, saying, well, if you can't pay your debt, you've had to submit to austerity, and if your population emigrates, as much of the Greek population is doing, uh, you have to pay the price. Uh, Shrinkage and emigration is uh, what to pay for debt cancellation. Uh, The ancient Near East couldn't afford the Greek Eurozone solution, because they would have been depopulated, and they would have been conquered by uh, neighboring countries that uh, didn't submit to austerity uh, programs. So the advantage of studying the ancient Near East is to see a contrast in all this. I got into this originally, I'd given a lecture, Uh, I was working with the United Nations Institute for Training and Research in 1978 and 79, and we had a big meeting in Mexico, and I'd warned, I would gave a lecture on what I'd found when I was Chase Manhattan Bank's uh, balance of payments economist, that the third world couldn't pay its foreign debts. This was a few years before Mexico uh, uh, declared it couldn't pay in 1982, and there was a riot, uh, people were trying to beat up uh, the Americans, thinking they were they were me. Uh, and uh, there, were, uh, there was such a fuss that I thought, gee, I'm going to write a history of uh, how debts can't be paid, and uh, got all the way back into uh, the Near East and found out there wasn't any economic history of the Near East, that it was all scattered through many journals. And that's when I went up to Harvard and we decided to put together this group to do an economic study, category by category, of uh, how ancient economies actually developed the origins of modern economic civilization.
0: Well, Michael Hudson, thank you very much for joining us here on the Renegade Economist radio show. Yet again, must be about our 10th interview, I reckon. Fantastic, Michael.
1: Good. Thank you.